listening to the Ion New York podcast. This is Robert Harding, the Citizen's Political Reporter, and this podcast is presented by The Citizen. Today I'll have an interview with Dana Balter. Balter is running for Congress in the 24th Congressional District. This is her second run for Congress. She ran last year in a race against Congressman John Katko here in the 24th District. Katko won that contest by about five points, and so Balter is giving another try. Uh, she does have competition for the Democratic uh, nomination. Uh, there are two other candidates in the race right now, two other Democratic candidates in the race right now. Uh, Francis Canole, uh, who was on the podcast recently, and Roger Misso, uh, who was also on the podcast recently. So Balter rounds out the uh, kind of first round of podcast interviews with the Democratic candidates in New York 24. So Uh, Listen for that later uh, in the podcast. Uh, She discussed why she's running and also uh, uh, shared her thoughts on some of the uh, big issues uh, in the 24th District race. Uh, We talked about uh, climate change, taxes, among other things. So uh, listen for that uh, later in the show. Uh, But first, uh, I wanted to kind of summarize what's happening in Onondaga County with this dispute over early voting poll sites. Uh, If you caught the story last week, uh, there is some disagreement uh, among the election commissioners and even among uh, people affiliated with either the Democratic or Republican parties about whether there should be six or eight early voting poll sites in Onondaga County. Now, to take you back uh, earlier this month, uh, the, the the county elections board came out with its list of six early voting poll sites. Uh, if if you caught my story, then there's a map I have, and I'll actually I'll link to it uh, in the. If you're reading this on AuburnPub.com, you'll be able to find a link to that map uh, showing where the poll sites are located. But if you look, you know there's pockets, a couple of pockets of uh, Onondaga County where you might have to drive a little further. If you live in any of those areas, you might have to drive a little further to an early voting poll site or commute to. You could uh, take a bus uh, or some other mode of transportation or you know take your bike or uh, walk. Either way, uh, it might take you a little bit longer to get to those poll sites. Now, on the Democratic side, Dustin Zarney, who's the Democratic Elections Commissioner, in Onondaga County, a past guest uh, on the podcast, he wants two additional sites. Uh, he wants to add a site, um, he wants to add a polling location uh, at uh, Cicero Town Hall in Onondaga County and also wants to add a polling location at Onondaga Community College uh, with, with the OCC site serving some of those towns and kind of this western part, southwestern part of the county. Uh, think of, uh, at least nearby for us, Skinny Atlas, uh, Elbridge, uh, that area that might be better served by a site at OCC uh, is his thinking. Uh, and, and then, of course, I, I mentioned the Cicero Town Hall location. That would make it uh, eight sites. Uh, the other sites are kind of sprinkled around the county. There's a couple in Syracuse. There's one at Clay Town Hall. I believe there's one in Van Buren, uh, another in Lafayette, and there's one in DeWitt. Uh, and so uh, Zarni sees these two additional, the OCC and the Cicero uh, t- uh, 
locations as a way to cover, make up for some of those gaps uh, in different parts of the county. On the Republican side, Michelle Sardo is the elections commissioner, and she believes that six is enough. Uh, I, I talked to her about this last week. Uh, she feels, uh, you know, that the six that they have, uh, that's what they agree to. What she told me is that uh, they basically split it. So she got to pick three, Zarni got to pick three, and then they settled on the six. Uh, to kind of take you back, when New York passed this law, uh, you know, it requires nine days of early voting. And there were some regulations adopted by the State Board of Elections. They're still technically proposed regulations, but they did uh, approve them on an emergency basis that outlines how many, uh, how many polling locations should be in each county and it's based on the number of registered voters and for this purpose according to the regulations it's based on how many total registered voters so that includes your active voter and in, and inactive voter rolls so Onondaga County has over 300,000 you have to have one early voting poll site for every 50,000 voters so they need a minimum of six sites um, and they, they have six uh, at the moment, so they, they meet the standards. But the law also says that the county, if they choose to have more, they can have more. Uh, for example, here in, in Cuga County, uh, we don't have over uh, 50,000 voters. Uh, at least I don't believe we do. Uh, we have, you know, it's a county of about 78,000, 79,000 people. But uh, uh, we're only mandated to have one early voting poll site. Uh, either way, whether we cross that 50,000 threshold or not. Uh, I can't remember off the top of my head, but uh, only one is, is mandated. But they have been discussing uh, having three early voting poll sites just because of the shape of the county. Uh, one poll site would be in Auburn, uh, which is the, uh, the county seat uh, and also the, the largest municipality uh, in, in the county. Uh, so it's an obvious choice for that, but um, they also want to put uh, they also want to put early voting poll sites in the northern and southern parts of the county, just because there's quite a bit of distance between some of those areas. Think you know Fairhaven to Auburn, that's quite a haul uh, if you've ever driven it, uh, and then even you know going to the most extreme parts of southern Cuga County uh, is quite a drive too. So uh, putting something you know that's you know, more central for those parts of the county uh, has been considered, uh, even though, you know, there's nothing requiring the county to do that. But uh, in Onondaga County, uh, this has turned into uh, certainly a political dispute because uh, you see Democratic candidates for offices and incumbent Democrats chiming in and calling for the two additional sites supporting Zarni's stance that there should be two more early voting sites, one at OCC and one at Cicero Town Hall. Uh, and this is, you know, it, it really has, at least right now, there's no indication that it'll be resolved, although there's a deadline coming up May 29th uh, that uh, the county has to set, submit it's funding requests to the state uh, for early voting. Uh, the state will provide 
some funding for operational expenses and equipment purchases. So that's something that they have to take care of uh, within the next 10 days. And, uh, you know, there's no sign that this will be resolved. Zarni, I spoke to him last week. He's, he's you know, firm in his position that uh, there should be two more. Uh, but Sardo uh, says that, you know, that we, we agreed to the six, and that's what, you know, we should go with. Uh, there's also some concern from her as to whether... Um, as to what as to how this will be funded you know going forward uh you know the state gives money now that's great uh in in her view but what do you do down the road when these expenses you know continue uh who will be responsible for covering those expenses and you know she's worried about it becoming an unfunded mandate uh on the county so you know this has been uh this has been something, this issue of how many poll sites uh, the county should have. And really, you know, it's kind of a tricky situation because uh, there's other situations in other counties uh, and other places. Uh, for example, New York City, the boroughs there, there are complaints that there aren't enough early voting sites. Uh, one of the um, interesting things about the regulations is that really the most if you're a larger municipality if you have more than 350,000 registered voters in your county which there's not a lot of those in in New York but if if you do fit that category you're only required to have seven uh seven early voting poll sites and that that doesn't it doesn't matter if you have 350,001 or if you have 1 million you uh, uh, you can have uh, the, the law says that you only have to have seven early voting poll sites. So that's been an issue elsewhere, uh, primarily New York City, where uh, you know the the number of early voting poll sites is just over the minimum, and there's a lot of good government groups and elected officials who have complained about this, saying that um, it's not enough, that there needs to be more early voting poll sites um, here in central New York with Onondaga County uh, you know the the argument for OCC from Zarni is that you know it's in a it's in a location that it's along a um, you know it's along a travel path you know the buses go there and it's a uh, you know it's near a pop uh, a um, uh, high, high traffic route uh, and so that would uh, that kind of meets one of the standards for a, a early voting poll site. Uh, accessibility is another, um, and so he believes OCC is the best fit. I did ask him, would he be willing to compromise uh, if if there's an issue with OCC? Which, uh, if you read the Syracuse Post Standard story about this, um, Sardo mentioned, uh, you know, she expressed, I guess, some concern about the fact that it would be at OCC and colleges, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, uh, college students tend to vote Democratic. And so she thought that would it would be uh, an unfair advantage, uh, it seems, to have it at OCC. Uh, Zarni's counter to that was that OCC is located in 
the town of Onondaga, and then it would serve all of these other towns, uh, uh, Camillus, uh, I mentioned Skinny Atlas, uh, for example, and those towns he, he noted are plurality Republican towns. So uh, in his view, uh, he, you know, any sort of uh, advantage gained, you know, it, let, let's say he, he disputed, I should note, he disputed the, the idea that uh, OCC's student population is, is predominantly Democratic. Uh, he, he, he went to OCC and uh, said that the demographics are a little different there than you would find at, say, Syracuse University. But uh, what he said was that, you know, with the towns and the makeup of the towns uh, being more Republican, you know, any sort of, you know, you know, there would be, you know, no benefit there, even if there's, you know, OCC uh, students who do vote Democratic, it's not like there's any sort of advantage uh, to be gained that, uh, you know, somehow OCC is going to, uh, you know, give the Democrats an advantage uh, with early voting. So uh, that was kind of a point he made. And, uh, you know, he's, He's sticking by OCC. I did ask him, you know, what about some other uh, facilities in that zone, as they've defined it. Um, and he said that that would be the best one. Uh, he doesn't see any other building as being a good option, uh, which, you know, there, there, are other there are town halls uh, in that area, and they're having most of the, the um, early voting sites, or at least a few of them, are at town halls. Uh, there's one uh, in Lafayette, for example. Uh, it's a fire hall. Uh, so they went with a fire hall, and then they have uh, uh, some community centers in the city where, um, where they're going to have early voting sites. But uh, this is a dispute that uh, will need to get resolved soon. Uh, like I said, May, uh, May 29th is the deadline. They have to get that information in to the state so that they can get their funding. Um, as of Monday when I record this, uh, when I recorded this, uh, there hasn't been any sort of resolution. Uh, they could easily move forward with the six if they don't get the eight, uh, but Zarni really wants those eight, uh, and it's it, it has turned into a bit of a, uh, you know, political football of sorts that... Um, you have uh, Democrats chiming in on this, saying that there should be eight. Uh, they're, they're kind of unified in the stance that uh, Cicero, Town Hall, and OCC should be early voting poll sites. Uh, and then you have Republicans countering that, saying six is enough. We don't need any more. These six sites will work. So uh, we'll see what happens uh, as this uh, plays out. Uh, like I said, less than 10 days ago until that deadline, uh, we'll see what the final Onondaga County early voting lineup looks like. Uh, I won't make any predictions on it, but uh, there will be at least six, uh, and the six are known. They're out there, and so you can check that out again on auburnpub.com. Uh, with that, we'll get to the interview with Dana Balter. Uh, again, Balter is running for Congress in the 24th Congressional District. This is her second congressional run. She ran last time. Uh, she ran last year, I should say, uh, and uh, was defeated by Congressman John Kako, who is in his third term representing the 24th District. Uh, the district, of course, uh, I should mention this, uh, is comprised of Cayuga, Wayne, and Onondaga counties. And in addition to that, 
part of Oswego County is also in the district, the western part. So the cities of Fulton, Oswego, and the, the neighboring towns. So with that, we'll get to the interview with Dana Balter. Here with Dana Balter, Democratic candidate for Congress in the 24th District. Again, Dana, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Robert. I always love coming to talk to you. Yeah, I believe uh, based on my unofficial tally, you're my first three-time guest. So oh, con- really? Congratulations on, on entering that Hall of Fame. I love it. Do I get a badge or something? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm thinking of ideas, uh, maybe certificates. Um, so I wanted to start with, uh, obviously, you're running again. Uh, what led you to that decision to say, you know, I ran last year, came close, came close to winning the congressional race. Let's give this another try. Well, I think pretty much all of the reasons that I got in the race the last time around are still there, right? All of the the challenges that our communities are facing here in central and western New York that I really wanted to go to Washington to work on, we're still facing those same challenges. People still can't afford to buy their medications. Um, our farmers are struggling to make a living under um, you know, the current trade war that's really hurting their ability to survive. Um, we have now seen the results of the tax bill that was passed last year. And so many Central and Western New Yorkers are paying a lot more in taxes. Um, And they're understanding just how unfair that is when the top 60 corporations in the country paid zero dollars in income taxes. All of those things are still there. You add to that um, some of the other things we've seen coming out of Washington where Donald Trump's administration is bringing us closer to war with several countries across the world, where we are seeing um, incredibly aggressive attacks on women's rights. Um, There is so much going on that needs to be addressed, um, and those things are still there. Um, So I want to go to Washington on behalf of the people of Central and Western New York and stand up and fight for what's going to make our lives better, for what's going to make our communities stronger, for what's going to make uh, the future for our families brighter, for what's going to make our communities safer. And um, I think that that is uh, a fight that can't wait. And um, I am eager to build on all of the progress we made in the last cycle. As you said, we came close to winning. Um, So we're ready to get the job done. You mentioned trade, and uh, I actually heard from a soybean farmer here in Cuga County this week about the impact of trade, especially the the ongoing uh, trade war with China. Yes. um, which I know uh, a lot of farmers have mentioned is is uh, a big problem for them. Yeah. Uh, that's a that's a huge market uh, in the in the world economy, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, it's one that's more more and more difficult to get into. Uh, so, what needs to be done there? Obviously, we've seen what the Trump administration is doing. What's the different direction we should go in? Yeah, well, I think uh, this trade war is such a <laughs> a problem. Um, you know, Donald Trump says that it's about getting a fair deal for American workers and American industries and American farmers, and that's what we all want. But that's not what this trade war accomplishes. Um, just last week, he escalated the trade war. Uh, so now we're looking at 25% tariffs, right, up from 10% on hundreds of billions of dollars of Chinese goods. That includes 
um, agricultural products, right? So you mentioned the soybean farmer you heard from in Cayuga County. Um, here's what happened to soybean farmers with that change. Their crop went down to eight dollars. Um, they have lost over 90% of the value of their soybeans in since the trade war first started. That is an unbelievable loss. And we're talking about our farmers who already are operating on razor thin margins, right? These are people who work incredibly hard and barely get by. And when you add um, these kinds of irresponsible trade policies on top of it, it makes it nearly impossible for them to survive, for their businesses to survive, which of course is the opposite of what government should be doing. We should be making it easier for people to be successful, not harder. Um, the other thing that's really concerning, you know, I've heard Donald Trump and some other members of the administration talk about how this is a sacrifice our farmers need to make for the better, uh, for a better policy for America. But here's the thing, it's not a matter of, you know, hold on, this will be done in a year. What I just read um, about what they are predicting is going to happen as a result of this escalation of the trade war over the next few years. And while um, our soybean farmers are being hurt here in the US, South America has been gaining market share. They are now a supplier, a big supplier of soybeans to China. And what that means is that even if we get to the point where we cut these tariffs down, right, and we get back to sensible policy, our soybean farmers here in the U.S. will not get back to their pre-trade war prices until 2026 or 2027. That's what the new estimates tell us. How can we expect them to hold on for that long? We cannot engage in these kinds of disastrous policies um, because the hardworking farmers and families of our communities are being hurt by that. And we need to um, negotiate trade in conjunction with our allies, not in isolation from them. If you want to exert pressure on China to stop stealing intellectual property, which is something we need to do, the best way to do that is to work with our allies around the world to all put pressure on China together. The answer isn't to separate from the allies and, and start a trade war. Um, so we've got to rethink that and Congress needs to reassert itself in this area. Um, we need a representative who's going to stand up and say, no, this is bad policy for us. This is hurting our people and um, we need to be smarter about it. Uh, obviously, we don't have that in our current congressman and it's one of many reasons why I'm running to replace him. I wanted to ask you about another issue of international importance, climate change. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, certainly we've seen uh, studies, we've seen uh, uh, different findings that suggest uh, this problem is only getting worse. We knew it was bad to begin with, now it's getting worse. And there's a shorter time frame, they're saying, uh, to, to really tackle this problem. Mm -hmm. um, what, what steps in Congress, what steps should Congress be taking to do just that, to, to tackle climate change. Yeah, it is, um, it's a crisis. It really is. And it's not 
Um, <laughs> the, the talk of it being a crisis is not overblown. This is something that is a threat to our health and safety and well-being, to the existence of our very communities and our world. And we have to address it. We can't wait. Um, we've known for a long time that it's a crisis, but our, our um, government has not chosen to take action, or certainly not to take enough action, to deal with it. And we don't have that option anymore. All of the science tells us that time is running out and we've got to get moving. This is one of the things I talked a lot about during the campaign last cycle. Um, I think what we need to be doing is looking at the climate crisis as an opportunity for economic growth in this country. I talked a lot about wanting to build a green economy regionally. I still think that is the way to go. I think that is what gives us the best opportunity to revitalize central and western New York. Um, we have growing industries. The renewable energy industry is on the verge of exploding growth. Um, right now in the country, uh, solar panel installation is the fastest growing job. And these are jobs that pay well, right? So they're the kinds of jobs that we want to see coming to central and western New York, jobs that allow people to support their families, save for the future, pay for their kids' education, really live well, not just get by. Um, and there is a huge potential for that growth, not just in the immediate term, but in the long term, because green technology is the next wave of what's coming. We are moving to a renewable energy economy. We are moving to um, carbon neutral energy sources. There's huge expansion in solar power and wind power and geothermal. And we need to be promoting that. And the government should be investing in that. They should be um, supporting and incentivizing the research and development we need to get to the point where our energy can be carbon neutral. Um, we know these things. Science has been telling us these things for a long time, but the government's been reluctant to move in that direction. Uh, one of the reasons that we haven't seen that policy change is because of the influence of big money from corporations who um, don't want to see renewable energy development, right? So uh, we have a lot of money from the fossil fuel industry coming into politics, promoting things like fossil fuel subsidies. Uh, John Catco has taken over $100,000 from fossil fuel, from the fossil fuel industry. Um, but here's the thing that people who are against addressing the climate crisis won't tell you. Even the energy companies, even the fossil fuel energy companies now are saying, hey, this is what's coming. We want to be ready for it. We want to be part of it. This is how uh, the future economic growth is going to be. And we need to be responsible stewards of the environment. So let's plan for this. Let's invest in it. 
um, they are coming on board before many members of Republican Congress are coming on board. And so uh, the business community knows that this is smart economics, that this is good for business growth. So what we need to do um, is get rid of elected representatives who refuse to acknowledge the size of this crisis and refuse to take the steps necessary to address it. Um, we should be electing people at all levels of government and across the country who are um, talking about the climate crisis and are ready to actually take action. Do you support uh, the, the idea of a, a carbon tax or this carbon dividend that, uh, you know, would in a way incentivize companies to uh, to cut back on emissions, otherwise they face, you know, some steep fees for that. So I do support the carbon fee and dividend um, policy. There are a few different flavors of that policy, different designs, um, and I'm not married to any one particular variety of it. Um, but it's a market-based solution to this problem. I talked about this in the last campaign. I supported it. Uh, Congressman Katko criticized me for my support of this policy. It is um, widely acknowledged on both sides of the aisle to be a smart, market-based way to address uh, the carbon pollution problem. By itself, it won't completely solve that problem, right? So it needs to be one piece of a bigger picture. Um, but this is a policy that comes out of conservative think tanks. It has support from conservative economists. It has support from environmental groups. It has support from a large portion of the American public. Um, I think once more people understand how this works, they will be even more supportive of it. One of the things that's very appealing about it is that um, the dividend gets paid to the average homeowner. So you as a, as a household will get a little bit of money at the end of the year. Um, and so in addition to helping us stop the carbon pollution problem, it also gives a little economic boost to households, which is incredibly important. Um, so I think it is a very smart policy. I'm eager to see it passed. And um, I, you know, I'm waiting for John Catco to uh, get on board. Uh, looking at another uh, proposal, a much broader proposal, the Green New Deal. Uh, we talked about this uh, after your announcement, but um, and, and you, you mentioned that there's there's parts of that that you that you like, but you also you want something more concrete, more specific. Uh, the Green New Deal, of course, is a resolution, and uh, it's kind of more in the abstract. Uh, but you know, if if you were a member of Congress, would you push for passage of that and and work to you know outline those specifics? Um, I would definitely be working to outline the specifics. I'm, I, I'm sort of ambivalent about passing the Green New Deal as it is, um, I, and for those reasons that I explained before. Uh, I think it is important to have frameworks. Um, it's important to sort of make a statement of what your principles are and what your goals are and the things that you're working towards. And I think the Green New Deal does that. What I like about it is that 
um, it acknowledges, it recognizes the magnitude of the problem that we're facing. And it says, you can't just have these small, you know, take a little nibble here kind of policies, that that is not going to solve this problem. And if we spend our time focusing on little bitty things nibbling around the edges, we are not going to be anywhere close to addressing the climate crisis. I like that about the Green New Deal. But I think um, what we really need to be doing is building the concrete and pragmatic policies. Carbon fee and dividend that we just talked about is one example. Um, driving investment to renewable energy, uh, research and development and establishment and growth of re the renewable energy industry, I think is very, very important. Also gives us the opportunity to be a global leader in an emerging economy um, instead of playing catch up to places like China. Um, so I really want to talk about those things. And my concern is that if we spend all of our time talking about the Green New Deal, at which the Republicans want to use as a political football, we've heard what Mitch McConnell has said about it, right? It has no chance of going anywhere in the Senate, but he's going to call it up for a vote because he thinks it'll be politically damaging to Democrats, blah, blah, blah. So now we're talking about political games instead of talking about the climate crisis. Hmm. We don't have time for that nonsense. And frankly, most of us don't have the patience for it anymore. We're sick of being stuck in this partisanship and gamesmanship. What Central and Western New Yorkers want is people who are going to roll up their sleeves and get the work done. And I'm not really interested in having conversations that distract from that. I'm interested in focusing on those pragmatic solutions. I wanted to ask you about uh, abortion because just this week we saw in Alabama and I believe Missouri as well, uh, new laws passed. Uh, uh, you know, some of the most, some of the most, if not the most, restrictive abortion laws in the country. Uh, on the other side of that, you see what we've done in uh, New York, the Reproductive Health Act that was passed this year, uh, which preserves uh, that that right. Um, where, where do you see Congress's role in, in this debate? And also, are you worried that these laws at the state level will lead the Supreme Court to revisit uh, the Roe v. Wade decision? Uh, the laws that we've seen passed in the last few weeks, uh, culminating in this, um, the most restrictive ban in Alabama, are uh, reprehensible. This is a, a not only a rollback of long-established rights, but this is an attack on women. Um, it has nothing to do with um, being pro-life. It is about being anti-woman. And we cannot allow our country to move backwards. Um, we, we know that the Alabama legislature knows that law is unconstitutional. We know that all of these bans are part of a strategy to get have this escalate to the Supreme Court because they think that with the new justices on the court, they will overturn Roe v. Wade. Um, there were lots of people who sounded the alarm about this when Donald Trump won the election, and uh, we were repeatedly told that we were being hysterical and that there was no way anything like that would happen, that Roe v. Wade was settled law. And here we are two years later and we're watching it happen. This is a very serious thing. 
Um, Congress needs to step up and protect women's rights. We are talking about health care. We are talking about control over your own body. We are talking about guaranteeing that women can um, have the privacy, the dignity, and the human right to determine um, what happens with their bodies, to access the health care that they need, and to recognize that those decisions are between a woman and her doctor and whoever else she chooses to bring into that, family, religious counselors, whomever. Politicians and government have no place in that decision, just as they have no place in the decision of whether or not you should have heart surgery. These are private decisions, and what Congress should do is codify that, is protect that, um, establish beyond any doubt that uh, there is no place for um, government interference in those decisions. You mentioned you mentioned the tax law earlier, uh, and I, I did want to ask about that. In in this sense, you know, we uh, 2018, the, the tax filing year anyway, was really the first year we saw the the impact of this, and so mm -hmm. people who filing their taxes this year uh, saw the you know the either the benefits uh, in some cases those who say that uh, it helped them out or you know the negative consequences of that i know that there, there were people who said they didn't really see much in their paychecks from that if anything uh and then there's other people who point to the the um uh you know the tax returns the fact that uh uh you know they they did not get uh, as much back as they are used to getting um uh, mainly due to the withholdings, but with that, with that now known, looking ahead to 2020, do you think that this is going to be an issue for Congressman Katko? The the effects of this this law, uh, and now that people have been able to see it, do you think it'll uh, have a much more have a bigger impact uh, on this congressional race than it did uh, last year? I think it will continue to be an issue. I think it was an issue last year. I think. His vote on this tax law is one of the reasons why he lost so much support in the district. Um, we knew what was going to happen. He told us it wasn't going to happen. Now we see the results and we see that everything we predicted happened. Um, there certainly are some people, some families, some households um, who've seen a little bit of benefit. And that's great. Um, the vast majority of people have not. Uh, there are a lot of people right here in our communities who um, were really hurt by that bill. I've, I've heard from a lot of them since April 15th. Uh, people who ended up not just with smaller refunds than they expected, but with tax bills, right? People who normally get refunds who this year owed taxes. I've heard from families who saw their tax bills go up by as much as $3,000. Um, that is a real problem for our hardworking families. But what's more than that even is we now see what the overall distribution of benefits of that bill looks like. This is something I talked a lot about that 
the congressman assured us was not an issue. And now we see that it actually is. We see that the top 60 corporations in this country paid zero dollars in income taxes this year. How can we justify letting companies like Amazon, right, the wealthiest companies in the world, not pay income taxes when our neighbors are paying, not only paying income taxes, but paying more in income tax? That is not a fair system. That is giving an extra boost to the people and the companies who don't need it because they're already doing well. And putting extra burden on the folks in the middle who are struggling to get by. That is backwards. And they told us, um, no, no, the reason we give tax breaks to these corporations is because then they pay better wages and they add jobs. Sounds really good. I would be all for it if that were true, but it's not. And now again, we have the evidence. We can look back over this past year and we see that in fact, the vast majority of the money that these corporations saved went to their shareholders. It went to stock buybacks to raise their own stock prices and make their shareholders richer. A tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of companies in this country actually spent any of that money on their workers. And in most cases, when they did spend on their workers, it was for one-time bonuses instead of meaningful wage increases that actually change people's standard of living. That is not an acceptable system. It's not a sustainable system. That's why we have such a high degree of economic inequality in this country. And it is time to start implementing tax policy that puts hardworking families and vulnerable populations, the elderly, people with disabilities, veterans, students, at the heart of the policy. Those are the people who should be getting the boost. Um, I have no faith that John Katko will ever take that kind of approach to tax policy because not only did he vote for the tax bill, but he still defends it as the right choice. We need people in Congress who are going to stand up and say, hey, I'm here to fight for the working folks. We need policy that puts them first. It's what Central and Western New Yorkers want. It's what the American people want, and it's long past time to get it done. I know that uh, last year uh, during the, the congressional race, you came out, I believe it was July, and said that you weren't going to accept uh, donations from corporate PACs. Mm -hmm. and I believe that you're you're still holding to that, uh, oh, that self-imposed ban. Yes. Um, uh, I know that the two other Democrats in this race as well have said that they're not going to accept uh, corporate PAC comp contributions as well. From your perspective, anyway, why is that significant for you as a candidate to say, I'm not going to take money from those from those or, those organizations? Well, I think it is um, for reasons similar to what I was talking about in the in the tax policy area. We as Americans deserve a system that works for us. It should work for everybody. Right now, the political system is designed to work for a powerful few. It's designed to work for the people, the corporations, the entities who have lots and lots of money. Um, our elections are driven by money, we all know that. And what that means is that elected officials have the incentive to do what those big donors want. 
because they need their money. And so if you give lots and lots of money to a candidate or to a party, guess what? They're going to take your meeting. They're going to listen to what you want in terms of policy. And what we see happening is they're going to pass those policies. That's why we have a tax bill that is a huge benefit for corporations and not a benefit for regular people. If we have any hope of changing that so that the system works for all of us, we have to get the money out. We have to limit the influence of big, powerful donors and make sure that the strongest, loudest voices that get listened to and responded to are the voices of everyday people. The only way to make that happen is to get the money out of the system. So for me, the beginning of that is no corporate money. I want all of the voters and the non-voters here in Central and Western New York to be assured 100% that I am working for them and nobody else. But that's really just the first step to fixing our very broken political system. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I was so excited to see uh, the Democratic Party in Congress advance HR1 as its first package. That package of legislation is all about fixing the system. It's about restoring ethics and integrity. It's about limiting the influence of money. It's about making sure that every American can exercise their right to vote. Those things are so critically important. Our congressman voted against that bill. It was astonishing to me to see him do that. Um, fixing the health of this broken system is the most important thing we can do because that's how we're going to get to make progress on all of these other things. How we're going to get fair tax policy. How we're going to get access to health care for everybody. How we're going to get great educational opportunities for our kids. Common sense gun safety measures so that we know our kids come home safe at the end of the day. The broken system, the money and politics stands in the way of all of that and we've got to clean it up. I want to close with a, a couple questions. One, uh, and this is something I actually haven't asked your uh, Democratic uh, counterparts. Um, next year, when you run, if there's a primary, and then if you make it to the general again, uh, there will be early voting, which mm. is which is uh, 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 it was passed this year in New York, uh, signed into law by the governor. It'll take effect for the general election this year, but it'll be in effect for all of our races next year, including the presidential mm. primary. How do you think that'll make a difference for you as a candidate running, uh, if it'll make any difference at all uh, in your race? So I don't think it will really make a difference for me as a candidate. I think it's going to make a big difference for the voters. And I am so excited to see um, not just early voting, but a lot of the voting reforms that have passed and some that we're still waiting on and hoping will pass soon um, to be implemented because it has been, there are too many barriers to voting in our society broadly, and certainly here in New York State. Um, you know, people think of New York as this very sort of politically engaged, active part of the country. Um, and while I think that's true, our voter participation is extraordinarily low. We rank 47th out of 50 states in the country in voter turnout. Um, one of the reasons why that's true is because all, of all of these restrictions we had. So early voting um, is going to be a great thing, I think, for the voters because it means all those people who can't get to the polls on election day because it's a Tuesday and they can't leave work, right? A single mom raising three kids, working two jobs, um, doesn't get to take 
Tuesday off to go to the polls, or somebody at home with three children who doesn't have childcare can't leave the kids at home to go vote. There are lots of uh, things that stand in the way from people being able to participate. By expanding voting and giving early voting days and early voting opportunities, we make it easier for a lot of people who would like to participate to do so. And I think that's a great thing. Um, I'm very excited about it. One of the things that I will be doing as a candidate is making sure that people know about it. I'll be using my platform, uh, the microphone that I have at my disposal, to make sure that as many people know, not only that they can vote early, but how to vote early as possible. I'm really hoping that we see record turnout in this election um, because we've done things like early voting that make it easier. Uh, and to close, uh, obviously you got in the race last month. Uh, but there's a long way to go. Uh, the uh, the primaries in uh, next June, uh, and then of course the general uh, next November. So what do you do in this off year to kind of build to 2020? Um, well, I think that there is a lot of work to do, um, not just in terms of the campaign, but in terms of the country and in terms of our communities. Um, and I I like to... Um, spend as much time as I possibly can talking to people all across our district and listening to what they have to say, what their concerns are, hearing their questions, um, to really dig in and discuss, you know, what do you think the challenges are that our communities are facing and how can we come together to solve them most effectively. There is no wrong time to have those conversations. It doesn't, they're not held to the election cycle. Those are things we should be talking about all the time. Um, one of the things that a long election cycle allows us is more opportunities to get into every corner of the district to have those conversations. And I'm really uh, grateful for those opportunities. But we also have to remind people that 2020 isn't the only election that's coming up. Um, politics is not just about elections and elections are not just every two years. Um, in this coming November of 2019, we have a lot of very important elections on the local level. And local elections, we, they don't get as much attention. We don't talk about them as much. They certainly, we don't see them on TV because they don't make national headlines but they have a huge impact on our daily lives, right? The things, when I go out and talk to people, they're talking to me about healthcare, but they're also talking to me about potholes. And they're talking to me about uh, the water main break that happened down the street and flooded their neighborhood. Those things are very important. They have a significant effect on our lives and those are addressed at the local and the county level. And local elections is where you can have the greatest impact on those day-to-day -day issues. So um, I'm going to be spending a lot of time talking about local campaigns and encouraging people not only to get out and vote, but to get involved, to go to candidate forums and listen to their um, local candidates and find out who they agree with and figure out who they want to support and then hopefully encouraging them to volunteer on those campaigns, to donate to those candidates, to talk to their neighbors about the elections, to make sure um, that we have really solid participation in this year's process because um, that comes first. 
then we can worry about what happens in 2020. But we've got a lot to take care of locally. Um, we have amazing candidates running uh, up and down the ticket all across this district. And it's an opportunity for people to really shape what's happening right here at home. Um, so I'm hoping to spend a lot of time uh, focusing on those elections and bringing attention to them. Dana Balter, Democratic candidate in the 24th Congressional District. Dana, thanks again for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. That was Dana Balter, candidate for Congress in the 24th Congressional District. Thanks again to Dana for joining me on the podcast. Uh, that She is the third uh, candidate uh, to join me on the podcast in recent, in recent weeks. Francis Canole was on uh, recently. Uh, same is true for Roger Misso. And so I hope to talk to them throughout this process. Uh, 2019 is going to be a busy year um, politically. Uh, certainly there are local elections, but you know these candidates are building toward uh, 2020. So we'll have a lot to talk about uh, leading up to the designation process early next year. And then uh, you know there's a good likelihood that there uh, will be a primary. So uh, plenty to talk about over the next several months. Uh, before I leave, I uh, wanted to make a quick announcement. Uh, going forward, uh, we'll have a weekly podcast. Uh, going to get away from the two-day-a-week uh, schedule and instead go with a weekly podcast. Uh, I'll upload the podcast every Tuesday uh, going forward. It's just easier. Uh, you know, My goal is to make it more of an interview-centric show and even have multiple interviews uh, in an episode, uh, you know, with that, the episodes will get longer. So if you're working out and you need a podcast to listen to, hopefully mine's a good option. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, the goal going forward is to have, you know, two or three guests a show. Uh, I'll start with, uh, with Memorial Day being next week. I'm going to start this off in the first week of June. And th that's significant, uh, to me, for a couple of reasons. One, we're a year out from the congressional primary, uh, well, actually the federal and state primary, uh, thanks to that change earlier this year by the state. But also it's a, about the year anniversary of the podcast, originally known as the Today in New York 24 podcast. Uh, and so my plan going forward, you know, have a few interviews posted on Tuesday, let you digest that for a week and then come back with a new podcast the following Tuesday. I, I really like Tuesdays uh, as the day to drop a new podcast because it seems, uh, just based on the metrics, that uh, uh, not that Thursdays were bad, but uh, it seems like Tuesdays you get more life out of it and uh, you have that whole week, that mo well, a bulk of that work week uh, to, to listen to the podcast and then through the weekend if necessary. But um, I really want to focus on that going forward, make it more of a you know, comprehensive show uh, every week uh, instead of just doing these you know, 30 to 45 minute sessions where part of it's me talking and then maybe we have an interview. Uh, I think if I have more time, uh, I'll be able to put together uh, a good podcast uh, with a, you know, at least two or three guests every week talking about topics uh, important to uh, those those in central New York and, and broadly uh, New York State. So um, just looking up the date here, uh, the first, after taking a break, because again, no podcast next week or for the rest of this week, um, but going forward, the first podcast will drop 
June 4th, Tuesday, June 4th. That's when uh, I'll have the new and improved <laughs> edition of the podcast. Uh, again, hoping to get uh, a couple guests on every week and really make it a good show, you know, fo- centered around those guests uh, and whatever topics they're discussing. Uh, so, you know, June being the end of the legislative session, uh, hope to have uh, some guests on uh, who will talk about uh, issues happening uh, at the state level uh, that could be important. So uh, that's something to look out for. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's uh, uh, it's something that uh, I've thought about for some time, uh, just given the schedule. You know, it's it's tough doing multiple podcasts a week, you know, committing to this. Uh, and so I thought this would be the best approach doing a weekly podcast because I do I do enjoy doing it and I I find myself often uh, you know really packing a lot into one podcast and the other one if you don't have an interview it's kind of tough so uh, with this I think it'll work out and like I said really want to put a greater emphasis on interviews and getting a couple couple guests on and uh, I think that'll be uh, I think that'll be uh, uh, good for the podcast and hopefully for you listening uh, good for you as well so with that i'll wrap it up i'll talk to you the next time i'll talk to you it'll be june so enjoy memorial day weekend stay safe uh, don't get too much sun uh, hopefully the weather will co- cooperate and as i said i'll talk to you in june